Hi. Hi. Great. Thanks for the round of applause. Hi, everyone. I'm Suhaila. I'm a research fellow at LKYCSE, and I am thrilled to be your moderator for today, this segment itself. So as you've all heard and seen uh, from the photo montage that was shown during lunchtime, a group of 19 individuals comprising of non-profit practitioners, academics, and public service representatives had the opportunity to travel all the way to Scotland sometime back in July this year for a study trip. And this study trip was organized by IPS as part of the Future Ready Society conference series uh, supported by Toadboard. And the goal of this study trip uh, was to learn from organizations outside of Singapore that are engaging in new ways to build stronger communities as well as to deepen meaningful citizen engagement. Uh, and we do, and as Samuel has mentioned just now, we do have some of the participants here with us today. Uh, but before we dive into that, uh, let's set the stage with a short video showcasing snippets and highlights from the trip. In this trip, we will really look at how the Community Empowerment Act has been rolled out in Scotland and how it has galvanised the communities here to come together to do something different in their community. We wanted to see how various organisations uh, kind of empower communities and also like what are the different kind of engagement methods that they do and also how do they sustain this whole process in the long run. We started in the Edinburgh Futures Institute and we ended in the Glasgow's Robert Owen Centre for Educational Change. But it certainly wasn't an academic trip. And even in these academic uh, research centres, the focus was on how research and practice can be kind of partnership. The Development Trust Association of Scotland, they are a network of different development trusts. So Development Trusts are a kind of place-based community organisation that looks after a locality. What's different between just a development trust and a social enterprise or a voluntary organisation is this community-led aspect. So their boards are community-led, are community individuals um, and run by those local people within those organisations. We do play that sort of role of making sure communities are taking on assets, not liabilities. So basically, a development trust is usually set up to answer a need within a community. So mo like most uh, community organisations, there's usually a, a demand or a need or something's gone wrong or the community really want to come together and make a difference. A memorable visit was to the Grampton Community Garden where we saw how people living within the community actually took up spaces as a meeting point for neighbours to come together, to share a meal, to do gardening together. So it's really an example of what a few very motivated individuals could come together to do to change the community for better. So a few neighbours in 2010 got together and all throughout this area there are street corners. So they started off on one street corner growing food together and sharing that food in the community. We got this site in 2017. Around 2020 or something we applied for a community asset transfer. So we asked the council if, with the help of DTAS, <laughs> 
if this piece of land could be transferred to us. And when they see how many people that these guys are reaching, that they would like to reach, but they would not know how to find them, but they're coming here, then they were willing to give a reduction on the value. If the council asked for an outcome report, they could get one too, mm. but they don't. They've just said, we trust, yeah. we have we've given this land for this charitable purpose. This community has proven that this is what they want. Community asset transfer, which is part of the Community Empowerment Act of 2015. The asset transfer allows the community to purchase a derelict building, like a church that's not been used, or land, and then use it for what the community wants. The school that was in here, which is called Victoria Primary School, moved just over a year ago. It was the oldest working primary school in Edinburgh. Wow. It was about 2017. The numbers of children attending this school was rising because there was more and more new development. And the overwhelming um, response was that the families wanted, welcomed the idea of a new school. Mm -hmm. And it was at this point that the community got involved um, and asked the question, if we can prove that the community have a use for the building that everyone agrees, can we keep it in the community use? And that's what began what was called the community asset transfer process. Lots of people made lots of different suggestions. Mm. And running through all that, there was an idea of the need to bring generations together. So I'm at my with me today, she's learning how to do some housing finishing. And then I've worked with Audrey in the past, so she's been able to help me uh, do some work. So I'm just trying to sort of help support people that are in the same industry as me, I guess. And like training and learning and, you know, bettering their skills. As a charity, they invite schools to bring veterans along. And they have a Victorian school lesson. We're hoping that we could get funding and put in an application to Heritage Lottery Fund to run a big project that will bring people of all ages together to share their experience of education. One place that struck out to me was Swamp, uh, where they have a line in their main area that says right, they want to create a place where people want to be and not have to be. So um, this spoke to me uh, a lot uh, as someone from Participate in Design um, in the practice that we do, uh, where we really believe in um, advocating for the freedom to participate in people. And also at the same time, when they want to participate, we have to hold that space for them. So it's a pound a month for a membership and then it's £2.50 a shop. The £2.50 gets them um, items from each colour-coded aisle, so they can get up to 15 to 16 items. So it's about £25 worth for £2.50, and they can come four times a week. Not average is working with use, it's the whole family. It's trying to make a holistic approach to making people's lives better. Community transport, which is um, in here, so they rent from us, again, that helps sustain the building, and they take people to hospital, doctor's appointments, um, anyone with a disability. Multi-purpose room. <laughs> hey, did you get that? <laughs> <laughs> I hear the music, that's it. Uh, you know, some of our um, the young people that have got an element of bad behaviour um, 
very talented at rapping and they want to record themselves. They're, they've got a voice and they want to use it and this is the platform for it. And um, We can do interviews here. So it's not just all about music, it's all about employment, yeah. you know, and trying to progress people. The young, if we can get them, the younger we can get them, the better. This was the, the cloakroom for the gym. Can I give it a quick go? Yeah, yeah. go ahead. What we have seen in this trip, visiting the University of Edinburgh and also the University of Glasgow, it's really knowing how researchers and IHLs can work together with the community to form what we call a research practice partnership. So it's really getting researchers to understand the third sector and to know how we can work together to strengthen the impact that the third sector is delivering upon. We learned that if you actually have a bit of trust in a community's potential, they can actually um, impress you and create and evoke real community-led change. So partnerships is something important um, that we advocate for in Participate in Design and we believe in collaboration amongst agencies and other non-public sectors. Right, that was a really great video pieced together by Do It A Bag uh, from the IPS team. Let's give him a round of applause. Yay! <laughs> As can be seen in the video, uh, I was lucky to be part of the Fortunate Group, and we do have some of the participants here with us today. So before we start, can we get everyone to introduce yourself and maybe share more about uh, what you do professionally? Hi everyone, I'm Bikyao with the Singapore Children's Society. So um, I'm a social worker by practice. All these years I have been working with uh, children and young persons who have um, gotten into trouble with the law or have uh, mental health issues. So this is my passion and uh, when I went on this Scotland trip, it was quite interesting to, to find out quite a fair bit of things about how they work with uh, children and young persons, especially in the SWAM project. Yeah. Hi everyone, my name is Marie. I'm with Failure at Community Services. Um, so I'm with the Strengthening Families Division. Currently I'm leading a suite of preventive and developmental programs that aim to equip couples, um, parents and families on how they could build resilient and uh, thriving relationships. Okay. Hi everyone. Uh I'm Weeping from Participate in Design. Uh, so we're a non-profit that advocate for participatory design. Uh, so our project, uh, we try to work with the community as much as possible during the whole process as well as the outcome. So we really advocate towards uh, working like with them and not just for them. Yeah. Hi everyone, good afternoon. My name is Chester. I am an executive committee member with the Singapore Heritage Society. We're a charity and institution of public character that serves as an independent voice for heritage advocacy in Singapore. Apart from that, I'm also the founding director of the Heritage Business Foundation. We're a nonprofit that works with traditional businesses, craftspeople, artisans to try and transmit their trade, help them compete in a modern marketplace so they don't lose um, their edge compared to modern market entrants. 
Uh, and in my free time between those two things, I'm also a practicing lawyer. Hi everyone, Charles here. Great to be among friends. Uh, I'm from the Majority Trust. It's a philanthropy organization that started in 2017 with one very simple idea, which is how do we bring donors together to give collectively and create impact together? Uh, over the past five years, we've uh, worked with 250 donors, corporates, philanthropists, um, working in addressing some of the unseen needs. Uh, we've raised, uh, we raise now about $11 million a year, working with over 200 uh, grantee partners, uh, ground-up groups, social enterprises. Hi, I'm Benjamin. I'm from the SG Partnerships Office at the Ministry of uh, Culture, Community and Youth. Uh, so my office, we, we champion partnerships and co-creation between uh, Singaporeans and the government. Um, so we're always trying to explore new ways of how to get the community, how to get citizens involved meaningfully in, in uh, community and nation building. Yeah, so that's why we are very grateful for the opportunity uh, that uh, LKY and IPS invited us to this trip so we can learn about the how uh, some initiatives to empower people in Scotland. Yeah. Awesome. Now that we know the panel, uh, let's dive deep into the heart of the conversation, which, is, which comes to the first uh, question. To kick things off, uh, I'd like to invite the participants to share their key observation or any surprises during the visit that left a, a lasting impression on you? Uh, Chester, you look like you want to start first. <laughs> sure, yeah, I can start the ball rolling. Okay, um, hmm, something that left a lasting impression. So, uh, when we were there, the Scottish government had just secured something they called the City Region Deal. And it was a very princely amount of money um, to basically invest in that part of the region. Right, And based on almost, I think, everyone we spoke to uh, in the area, they would say that you know, the north of that region is traditionally considered underserved relative to the south. Right? And so my expectation was that they would be very cautious with that spending, very precious. They wouldn't want to give it out freely. You know, they got to make every dollar count. Um, but what I found was not quite what I expected. Uh, so the institutions of high learning that we visited many of these IHLs had become stewards of part of the funds, right? And it was their tasking to take some of this money and invest it in their communities, build up infrastructure, build up systems and groups so that they can, um, you know, teach people to improve their technological know-how, their processes and things like that. And so we asked them, how are you going about your spending? And over the course of, so this is a long project, the city region deals, like, 10 years plus, right? And in the first couple of years, at the very least, there was really this willingness to invest on the ground without asking too much in return. Without going, okay, I'll give you 200 grand, but you gotta, you know, within a year, you gotta show me this KPI or you gotta hit X number of, you know, engagements or something like that. I think there was just this willingness to believe, this faith that, okay, I'll put the money out there into the community. I will give it to the groups that I think need it that can you know, use this money to really level up their game and move up to a different level of practice. And in a couple of years' time, closer to the end of the 10-year period or so on, the community will have been enriched enough that now you've got multiple pillars and they can work together as partners with the IHLs and with the community rather than just being you know, beneficiaries, just being receivers of, of, of grants and funding. So I think that was definitely very refreshing for me um, to see that there was that willingness to give with the faith that it will come back at some point. 
Yeah. Yeah, I just like to add on to uh, what Chester have shared. Um, if you would have seen from the video, actually, the one of the community gardens. Yeah, when we asked about KPIs, when we asked about returns, so the answers. If you could remember, what was the answer? <laughs> Yeah, so, so the volunteer or even the, the staff are actually telling us they don't ask. They trust them with whatever was given to them. So that in itself also struck me yeah, to say that, hey, actually, um, that is what is happening in Scotland. And uh, back in Singapore, many times for, for projects that we run, we want to know what are our end goals and how far we have gotten there. Yeah, so these are things that are slightly different in terms of culture, in terms of our practices. But it does not mean that it is better or worse. It's just something that we take away with for us to really consider. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm from from the government, so I can't just say do away with KPIs. Unfortunately, <laughs> I wish. I wish. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I just just let me. Um, I thought I would elaborate a bit um, on a few of the more novel concepts that we exp uh, that we learned about there. Uh, that's a bit different than what we have here in Singapore. So um, uh, the first one I, th I thought is worth diving deeper into is this idea of development trust, um, and uh, this is quite unique to the UK. So um, one, one one way we can look at how unique this model is is by uh, comparing them with what we have locally here in Singapore. Yeah, so firstly, uh, development trusts have three key big uh, key characteristics. First, they are independent entities that are community-owned and led. Um, second, they are place-based, so um, they work for the regeneration of a defined area. Um, and then third, they are enterprising. Yeah, so if you compare, I think in the video you already saw, if you compare to social enterprises, um, Social enterprises are more issue-based rather than place-based, uh, and the board of directors tend to be uh, are not necessarily part of the community uh, that uh, the affected community that it exists to serve. Um, then you compare it. You can also take a more place-based example here. So we have resident committees, we have citizen consultative co committees uh, under the grassroots organisations. So these are place-based, um, but they are not. They don't have an enterprising structure, and also um, they um, they also are not fully independent. I mean, they're part of the government, right? Um, and the the third one, which I thought actually we have quite a good equivalent model, is actually the business improvement district model. Um, so we've we've recently caught on in Singapore um, and and ran a few pilots. Um, but the business, in the business improvement district model, you basically have um, a, a defined area, a defined region, and the businesses come together to enhance the vibrancy of the district. So it's quite similar, but the key difference is, of course, this is, it is business-owned, not community-owned. Uh, it is commercial value rather than social, economic, sustainable uh, value. Yeah. So, so that's, that's uh, something that I thought uh, to bring out. But I think one... Um, what what I'm saying is that um, we can actually, while it will take a quite a revolution to introduce such things in Singapore, um, and we have a very different context. We don't have abundance of land. We have um, a very um, dense population, um, but we can take some of these concepts and apply it to our work. You know, we can ask ourselves in on the initiatives that we have. You know, is it can we make it community led? Can we make it community owned? Um, can we make it enterprising? Can we make it place-based? 
Um, yeah, and and the other uh, big concept that was a bit more novel was uh, the fact that the community can own land together. So, example, the six of us here, we can come together, we can form a community, and then we can say this building is it's abandoned. We can say we want to buy it and repurpose it for the community's use, and uh, we can go through a journey a bit like our uh, home ownership journey. We can we can uh, firstly uh, develop our own constitution. We can. Um, we can submit an application, we can demonstrate that it's not just the six of us that uh, want to do something, we can get the whole community, uh, it's a genuine need of our whole community, and then we can uh, uh, agree on a price, raise funds, and then move ahead with, uh, and own this building, actually own it, not rent out, it's, it's own the building after that. So that was quite novel and interesting. Right. Thanks, Benjamin, uh, Chester, and also BKL for the sharing. And that brings us to the next question, actually. We heard a lot about the inspiration, but now that we're back in Singapore, I mean, Scotland was fun. We all had fun, right? But yeah, so we need to bring it back to maybe like the applications. Like, how have you all applied your learnings to your respective roles here back in Singapore? Maybe we can start with Charles? Thanks, so I think if I had to summarize my insight is simply this, right? That communities need space to thrive. Uh, and we think of space not just uh, in the physical sense, right? Because in, uh, in the video, you all highlight, uh, we saw some of the examples, uh, some of the community groups, development trusts taking over, you know, rundown buildings, a church, a school. Uh, but we can also think about space in the figurative sense, right? In, you know, linking to what BKL was sharing. Um, often, I mean, Speaking on behalf of funders, we tend to have this issue where uh, it's very much KPI driven. Uh, you know, there's this big question around measurement, right? Like everywhere you go, you know, top questions comes out. It's like, oh, how are you going to measure impact? Um, and what we learned and observed was that there seems to be a lot more space given to ground groups to actually explore and be organic about growth, right? Like, um, I mean, there's a trade-off that we take, right? Maybe the first one, two years, you have to give up some clarity. But eventually, having the trust and that faith that, you know, things will pan out. And if it doesn't, then, you know, I'm sure there's some good that we can actually track, some stories that we can actually use. So, I think you're speaking on behalf of maybe in the position of being a grant maker ourselves. Um, how do we kind of broaden the definition of what is impact in the, in the sense of when we think about community development? Right? How do we, how do we operate in an inherently complicated, maybe not complicated, but more complex, right? How do we gear ourselves for complexity? So I think that's one of the key things that we are looking at. Um, so Majority Trust, over the last five years, we've kind of built several different um, funding mechanisms and structures. One is that, you know, we do the conventional, which is we take a very cost-based approach, right? So we see that there's a need in youth mental health between 10 to 16, the younger groups. We started a fund raised now $3.2 million to give out, you know, 15 different charities. Um, again, I think that's all well and good. Um, and, but uh, the question is, how do we come together as a community and take a very different approach, not so much a program-centric or project-centric one? The second pillar that we created was um, really much about life cycle, right? Because we know that um, there's a whole group of emerging, you know, social entrepreneurs um, who are thinking about starting a social enterprise or maybe a non-profit but maybe don't quite get the support they need in the, in, in the early stage. So we want the funders that um, maybe, you know, are trying to extend ourselves to say, hey, what if we take this risk together with you? Uh, but we'll journey alongside you, right? And um, try to see it from a life cycle standpoint. 
So it started a series of funds, an incubation fund that helps uh, early stage non-profits to become charities and we've seen some of them now become IPC charities. Um, and then the third pillar is uh, partnership funds where we work with government agencies like NCSS, MOHT, to really co-administer funds uh, with a kind of view of partnerships as well as community building. Um, but more recently, actually, we've been thinking about an idea, which is how do we move beyond you know, funding organizations, growth, funding projects, and you know, different good ideas and services, right? Is can we identify a community actually we can plant ourselves, right? Almost as if we are going to be adopting a couple of blocks or a, a locality. Um, and, and see how can we pull together all our resources that we have actually built over the, the years. Instead of you know, them coming to us, can we go to the community? Can we say, we funded 50 charities and they all provide some value to the community. Can they actually go to this particular place? Um, and at the same time, can we also invite people within the community to contribute? Sometimes we think of donors or maybe only high net worth and uh, there are certain profiles that we build in our minds, right? But I think as we do community work, we also realize that it's the people in the community, the mom and pop shops, the SMEs, the just local people who actually are willing to contribute if given an opportunity. I think uh, Suefan talked about this earlier. So are we making that ask? Are we inviting them? Can we be a platform where they can come together, not just to contribute and to connect, but also to contribute. So that's a bit of our thinking. Wow, wow, wow. That's amazing, you know. There's so many ideas for us to unpack from there. But I guess Charles gave us more of a perspective of a funder. And we have a diverse but, uh, group of participants over here. Why don't we hear from someone from the nonprofit space? Uh, Marie? Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Charles. I'm so glad you are thinking about new projects to fund. So for us, I think what Justin said just now, right, about SSA, social service agencies, being a sad place, oh, I really touched my heart. Um, how is it that we have become a sad place for families? Actually, we, you know, as social service agencies uh, who are long established, we kind of get used to the idea of getting funding uh, from others, right? Um, but... Can we actually create a place that is not sad, but actually a place of happiness for families? I found that you know, in, in my work, even though we are doing preventive developmental work, um, people are telling us that they actually feel so disconnected with their families, with their spouses, and uh, work. life is all about work. You know? And if we ask them, okay, who, who is the so social support uh, nearby? Who, who can you talk to? Who are your friends? There are people who tell us that they have no one, right? If you think about the trends, actually, a third of our marriages are transnational. Uh, we have many foreigners in our midst. And even people who are in the community, they are not con connecting with neighbours. So what can we do to create a space for the community to get together? So this is something that was I, I really wanted to take up from Scotland because I wanted SSAs not to be a sad place, but to be a place where they can actually find happiness connecting with each other. And I know we were so inspired today by uh, what Dr. Wong has shared about the wellness kampong. The SS, the, well, the seniors are getting it. They have AACs to, to come to, but where is that place for families? So this is something that Feria will be looking into. Great, great, great. So we've heard from funder, we heard from a non-profit practitioner. I feel that now there's this new concept of an intermediary organization that I feel um, weeping. Yeah, you can share more on this of what you're learning and what you learn and what you are applying. 
in the Singaporean context, yeah. Okay, uh, I'll sum this up in two minutes. Okay. <laughs> so uh, for, for us, it's really these two things. It's really increase the community influence and agenda on like decision-making. So it's not really just about giving them the platform, but it's really more about the transparency and accountability of like the processes and the outcome that you have with the community themselves. So really about closing the loop and the communication. So these are the things that uh, are part of the direction that we're moving towards. And uh, it's something that we try to implement in uh, every project that we work with uh, in partnership with other uh, projects and communities as well. And the second thing is really building capacity for participatory design planning as well as like among actors at different scales. So we're talking about from residents all the way to like um, civil servants. So it's really about building that capacity and really ensuring that we are doing it uh, with you as well as like you're learning something in return and not just it's a service that we're just providing for you. So this ensures sustainability in the long run for future proje projects. And also this trains up um, you know, the, the, the people and the partners that we work with so they, can, they themselves can implement in their own respective fields and industry. So what, whatever we're providing is just a base framework for them uh, to implement in their respective sectors. Yeah. So uh, these two are the things that um, in a way are part of our PID 2.0, which this is my that I'm going to sell you. So this is the future PID 2.0 um, action research project, which is going to be tomorrow. <laughs> uh, it's a forum that we are doing um, to discuss like what does real participation really mean. A lot of the speakers just now you hear about is really about empowerment, but what does it really mean? And uh, how do people reach that stage of empowerment? Do we give them scaffolding? Are they ready? So all these things we critically um, reflect upon ourselves uh, in 10 years of work to really understand that like, um, you know, beyond just the numbers and all that, like, do people, the relationships, do they, does it really change to communities really feel a difference, that they can make a difference themselves? So um, please do come for the forum and discussion tomorrow at, from 7 to 9. Um, our co-founder, Jen, will be talking more about um, the different kind of uh, projects as well as um, whatever things that we reflected upon in our past 10 years of research. Lah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Great, great. Uh, thank you so much for the sharing and for the short koyo. Uh, it was very uh, intriguing. I'm going to attend. I think a few of us are all going to attend tomorrow. So see you all there. Uh, but anyway, thank you all for your sharing of your insights. And it's truly a testament to the power of experiential learning. And I really look forward to more study trips in the future. Anyway, uh, so now we will go to our 15 minutes window for questions from the floor. Uh, so let's change it up. Uh, we want people to stand up. Uh, yes, you can see there are mics uh, situated in the ballroom itself. Feel free to just go to the mics, uh, introduce yourself, and maybe which organizations or school you're from, and then uh, and feel free to just ask any questions regarding the sharing just now. Yes. Hi, very good afternoon to all. I'm Isia from Majlis Pusat Singapura. Uh, the sharing by the government gentleman there, Benjamin. <laughs> <laughs> About the KPI whatsoever, these are something that always uh, really are something that trouble us a lot in reporting back whatsoever when we get grant whatsoever. But the most important thing that I want to share is I like uh, your sharing. Yeah, all the others about how the, this Scotland people, the community comes together. I do not know if we can change 
our own community that we practice today towards what they are doing. I'll give you an example. We have a community gardens here in Singapore, but it is all fences. Until if we want to ask for a branch of curry leaf, also very difficult. So, please get somebody to do something about this. Community garden means open to the community, please. Thank you. Anyone from here wants to add on to that? No? Yes? Um, actually, just a small remark about that. Thanks very much about the sharing. Uh, I can only imagine the frustration. Um, I, my dad used to tell me stories of how when he was a kid, you know, uh, propagating plants was very common. Um, but I think, you know, as Singapore developed, uh, things have really changed. La. That was many, many decades ago. Um, you know, your sharing just reminded me of, I, I read in, I don't know if it was the papers or Mothership recently, you know that uh, the community library or something that was set up at like a void deck, like the founder has decided to throw in the towel, he's done, you know, there's like video footage of kids climbing the shelves and books everywhere. And it just reminds me a little bit of, you know, that saying, this is why we can't have nice things, right? Um, I'm not saying that there are no bad eggs in Scotland, right? There are bad eggs everywhere. Uh, but I think at least in Singapore, and I, I mean, I, I'm not speaking on behalf of the government or anything like that, it's just my, my two cents. Um, because of how small we are and how close everybody is, that balance has to be struck very sensitively, right? And it's a, it's a balance that we have to strike between being open enough where people can share and people can collaborate and, and all that, but also having that sense of accountability so that stuff like what happened with the poor community library doesn't happen again. Like, oh, that was really very painful to see. Um, so yeah, you know, when, when we looked at the community garden and you saw the, um, the video footage, right? It's open. There's no like, wow, this is your plot. This is my plot. Much I'm like cemetery like that, you know, so, so serious, right? Each plot. Um, yeah, dual purpose, right? But yeah, anyway, um, it, I, I, I like that much better than what we have in terms of the look and the ability to just walk from, you know, space to space. But I can also understand situations where there's friction, where neighbors are like, hey, why do you pull up my stuff? You know, why? And then, so I think the reason why plots are the way they are, I would imagine, is, is well-meaning or is well-intentioned. But it ends up leading to the frustration that you have mentioned. Uh, I think that's definitely something that, at least from my perspective, I hope that you know, we can become more integrated and more gracious as a society to each other. But until we get there, it's a tough balance that we'll have to strike. La. Just my own personal two cents. If I may add on to uh, what Chester shared, um, I remember speaking to Lisa from uh, Granton Community Gardens and uh, asking her how she got started. Actually, she just went, she didn't ask for permission from anyone. She just went to the street corners and started to just grow some stuff. La. Okay, uh, all, all, all legal stuff. Um, and uh, basically, you know, it was a case where she, it, it was just her just trying to beautify the, the community. Um, and I think one reflection I had was that maybe in Singapore, because we're so conditioned to anticipate what the government might think or what the authorities might say, there's also a bit of that self-limiting um, effect, right? Like, we will want to be super careful uh, and some, mostly for good reasons. But maybe the encouragement here is also maybe do first and then ask for forgiveness later. La. <laughs> See where that leads. You know, who knows, it might turn out to be something interesting. Yeah, if you need a good lawyer, let me know. <laughs>
Um, just uh, quickly, um, yeah, so for, for every um, case like what Chester brought up, the recent case about the community library, I think there are also successful examples. So I think the Holland, let's say the Holland one is doing well, the community library void deck. Um, so it's very contextual to the, the place. And um, I think what we, we do need underlying everything is for people to have a very strong uh, attachment and identity um, with, with, um, with their community. So we went around asking people, why do you do this? What's, what's, what's in it for you? You know, this kind of thing. Many of them were quite surprised at that question because they, they, they were saying, well, it's my community. That's, that's, what, you know, that's what's in it. I live here, uh, so every I live here. I live across the block. Yeah, so it's my community, and uh, or they will say, "Well, I love the building, <laughs> I love the place." Yeah, so um, it's, it's as simple as that. Yeah, so I I I think we we do have some of it here, but I think there's there's a lot more that needs to happen in our culture to to really reach that level of um, identity. We don't have uh, as long a history as as the UK, but. But we we can get there, yeah. Great, great. I think a lot of us resonate with that. Uh, we noticed that during the trip itself, right? And it really, I don't know, left a lasting impression for myself at least. Uh, how we're we're very skeptical, and I feel that there needs to be more research done towards like understanding what is community in Singapore and like how do we foster it amongst like different kind of people, like different profiles. Because I feel sometimes we are a bit to um, we think about work all the time, but the community is around us. And if we had that little time, we could have made a, a very big difference to people. So that's my take on it. But yeah, uh, is there any other questions from the floor? The panels, uh, the panelists are looking forward to any questions. No, anyone from any students? <laughs> I see a group of students there, a group of students there. Maybe a question from the student representative that are here for the conference. Come on, we have to hear some young voices. <laughs> no? Oh, um, not only young voices, right? Uh, young at heart too. Anyone, feel free to ask any question. Yes, yes, yes. Great. Hi, my name is Lim Sui Kim uh, from Global Esports. I'd like to ask if um, in, in your trip there, was there any elements of kampong spirit? Thank you. Great question. Come on, answer. <laughs> Yeah, that that's very strong kampong spirit, I would say. Because when they had, you know, they wanted to close a church or they had disused buildings or disused land, right? Wasteland. Um, and there was a threat that it could be closed. Um, and people mobilized each other. Right? We were really surprised how um, people, I mean, we met many people who were in their 60s, even 70s. And what they did was, when they heard that the church was going to be closed, they went around door knocking and they signed a petition. And they got people together, have a community uh, meeting and decide what to do. 
Um, so we saw this being replicated in very, a few uh, centres that we have visited. And we were just amazed that these people who were really uh, well posed to be retired, to enjoy their golden years, they decided to come back to the community and do something. And I think I was so impressed that they wanted to do it even though they had very little resources. I mean, if you think about community development in Singapore, in contrast, it's very top-down, um, very heavily planned, event-based, but not so what we saw in scholarly. We just saw that the people were resource-poor, but very relationally rich. They really worked at not just events, but uh, deepening conversations with each other. So there was a very, we don't call that kampong spirit in scholar, I don't know what they call it, but definitely we felt it, it was very strong. Anyone wants to add on to that? Yeah, also just to add on, um, on top of what they said, like trust and all that, right, it's really like they just say like passion, it's like they really just fuel on passion, but when we reflect back, like Singapore is also hard to function uh, on just like passion to fuel whatever that you're doing, you kind of need to eat and all that kind of thing, so in Singapore, the context is really, really different, you ask like, okay, how do I make money out of this, you know, like what's in it for me, there's a lot of benefits that you want to try and get out of it, so um, I would say it's really more about when we look at this, we take it um, as like, they, the commitment is really very strong, uh, more so than actually the actual kampong spirit and whatever that goes inside, and they are, uh, they are aware that, they, um, that this is purely like a voluntary work, and they're doing this like out of nothing but the kindness of their heart. Yeah, so uh, a lot of us, like, uh, even though this seems very, very noble, but we also sometimes question ourselves, like, you know, how, how, how can a regular, uh, uh, ask a regular auntie or resident to do this uh, for the rest of her life while she retires? It's also a very big ask, yeah. So that's why it's also about the power community and as well as the network uh, that they kind of work together on it, lah. Yeah, I think in, in Singapore, like um, in terms of like the, the level of participation, it has really increased. They are more aware and uh, they know their role, but it's also really about like how we see and how people are ready to fit that, this role in like the whole ecosystem that we talked about. How much can they contribute? Uh, are they ready to kind of do certain tasks or commitments yeah, in their day-to-day -day life? Yeah. Great, and I see a question. Oh, two questions. Oh, great. Okay, uh, who, come, who came first? Galvin? Okay, yeah, go ahead. Yes, uh, thank you for the presentation. My name is Galvin from the Lee Kuan Yew Centre for Innovative Cities. So my question broadly for the team is, why do you choose uh, Scotland? Uh, my, my, my question is, that I don't mean to generalise about the UK or Scotland, but if you read up the literature, there seems to be different issues. Like, for example, it seems to be in the UK, they have a concept of a NIMBY, you know, they don't want to build new things. So can the argument be made that they don't want to tear down old things because they don't want to build something new? I, I don't want to stereotype, but that's something from the literature. The second thing is, is that it seems to me that in the UK, um, if you look at the David Cameron's policies, it seems to me that uh, they, they're trying to spend less. So, so they're trying to push society, civil society as a way to not pay for, for services in, in that sense. Whereas in Singapore, and, and the third possibility is that it is possible that uh, in, in the UK, because of their spending cuts, um, they're trying not, not, not to, to, to spend so much, and so civil society has to step up. And, 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 and I know that possibly the, the civil society, the, sorry, the civil service there is less 
efficient than the Singapore civil service or less efficient than the Singapore uh, uh, instruments of state. So, so, why, so how do you account for these differences? Because, um, yeah, how do you account for these differences in making your, your, your presentation? Great question, Galvin. Uh, just for the interest of time, right, I'm just going to get uh, the gentleman there to share his questions too, and then we can just uh, end off with one or two answering, and then we'll move on to the next segment, yeah? Hi, my name is Vignesh. Actually, my question is quite similar. Singapore has got very high levels of trust with the government. And I think in the UK, that's about half of what you have in Singapore. I'm not sure if Scotland has a specific measurement. But in the UK, it's about half of what you have in Singapore. And so my question is, it seems like in, the, in Scotland during your trip, the trust between members of society is very high. The trust that policymakers, maybe they have no choice, but the trust that they have with civil society with the decision makers and members of society is very high and that seems to be not as prevalent in Singapore and how do you see that evolving in your perspective how can we change that because we clearly do trust the government but is that now the reason why as civil society we are not as keen or as motivated or is that a limiting factor I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't trust the government at all I think for very good reason we do trust them but I'd like to hear your perspectives Great, thank you, thank you. Uh, Benjamin, maybe you should take this and summarize everything yeah. for us. Hello, <laughs> thank <okay>. you. <laughs> Tough spot, but yes. yes. Yeah, okay, so I can't answer why Scotland because I think the organizers will answer that better. I just tagged along. Uh, but, but on. <laughs> But on, but I really appreciate your point because actually this really warrants a whole separate discussion. Um, unfortunately, we didn't have time to to dive deep into this. So the the context is very important. Uh, I think when we look at government people collaboration, there's always there's sometimes two different motivations. One is the political party trying to establish some sort of legitimacy. Hence, uh, we we partner with civil society. The other one is. We are low in resources, so yeah, Bopian, you go and do your own thing. Lah. And um, the civil service society steps up because the government cannot play its basic role of providing services. So we did see that in Scotland. Uh, I, I mean, I have to say that. And we did also observe that the, the, the people that we met had a rather antagonistic relationship with uh, local authorities. Okay, yeah. So so it's not it's not all um fine and I mean it's not all like people in Scotland are all so great and uh, they have this natural energy of um of uh stepping up in the kampong spirit. It's not that, yeah. But um what I think we wanna do is learn from them, take what's good, take the, the parts where uh, it's it's I mean take the parts where we saw observed a lot of community ownership. How can we apply that uh here uh, back in Singapore? And I would say, um, in the end, whatever um, whatever act that they have, legislation that they have, all this is just aspirational until you actually put resources behind it. Yeah. So I I, I quote one of the reps that uh, we talked to on the participation request. So the participation request, um, I think Justin shared about it earlier. The the take up is not very high. Um, it's not since it was enacted. Maybe they said hundred over cases. Um, it's not it's not a big number, and they say, he said it's because it actually there's the there's this act, but it hasn't actually changed where uh, power sits. What really needs to happen is you give government agencies more resources to handle these requests, and also you you build up civil society to be able to 
um, put forth their ideas constructively. So it really takes the society's resources to get behind, um, get get behind the aspiration of an act. Yeah. So so it's um, it's it, there's definitely a very uh, unique political uh, context there. And in fact, I I feel optimistic for Singapore because we we do have I mean we do have the basic like you said a strong administration. We do put resources behind uh, our commitments. I mean, sometimes we are hard, we we rather not promise so much, but when we do promise, then we do put resources behind it. So I am optimistic that we we can do something here, and we have a whole uh, um, peop, uh, this this group here who is just a, a whole third sector that's really enthusiastic about do, about this and building it together. So I think I think we have the favorable conditions to to make some of these things succeed in Singapore. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. That's a good uh, conclusion to our whole segment. Thanks everyone for the engaging discussion and insightful uh, insightful discussion as well. Um, if you have any questions of any particular topic or whatever, feel free to reach to the speakers on LinkedIn. Uh, I think they're more than happy to share their wisdom or expertise and their experience also. And with that, I'll pass the mic back to the MC Samuel. Please, thank you.